you can turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And if you're using your booklets to, uh, to take notes, um, Kevin Subra preached part of the sermon that I was going to preach anyway this morning. So I changed it a little bit. So you, that, that outline is not, I mean, it's helpful, but it's not really what I'm going to preach, just so you know. <laughs> but it's good. Uh, just, let's just, uh, I hope if you've, as we've been thinking about the fact that we're conquering the giant of trials by recognizing that God is our friend, that maybe even over the last couple of days you've been noticing ways that you need to view God as your friend in the midst of trials, choosing that path of joy, um, having a good relationship with the Word, receiving the Word with meekness, being quick to hear it, quick to d- delight in doing it, and, and to just pursue that. And then obviously last night we looked at the fact that therefore we need to, to, to recognize that we can be often self-deceived and therefore to check our hearts, right? And, and really the question is, is a lot of, which is it's helpful to realize, sometimes we're pursuing things and we're in the midst of trials and we have the right heart, we're just self-deceived about something and we just need to correct a few things. But oftentimes, when we, when we check our hearts, we realize, no, I've been following demonic wisdom, uh, earthly wisdom, and not only is it not just a matter of just changing that, it's like, I, I like what I've been doing so far sometimes. And how do you change that? What do you do? And so in James chapter 4, uh, Notice how James addresses that in James chapter 4 and verse 1. And I'm going to kind of really kind of condense this part of it down to focus on the next part of it because, again, Kevin did preach this really well uh, this morning. Uh, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, Kevin spoke on this and how um, we can get caught up in wanting to look more like the world than looking like uh, like we should be following God and, and walking with God. And it comes down to our desires. And James at, at points that it is like it's really at, at key here is understanding that sometimes our desires are so wrapped up in what we want that we haven't surrendered those desires to God and it causes us to get into quarrels with one another, fights with one another, and even fights with ourselves. I don't know how many young people as I've seen them turn away from God, they start to self-destruct mentally because they're at war with themselves if they're a Christian. Right? And, and so, as Kevin also mentioned from 1 John, right, too, where, what is worldliness? Worldliness is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the desires that aren't surrendered to God. They're caught up in what I want, what I think will be good for me, what feels good for me, what gives me status in my eyes or in others' eyes. And those things are passing away. They don't last. They don't satisfy. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so 
The, the question is, is when you find yourself in that spot, what do you do? And James gives us a great map for getting out of that kind of spot. And so, um, it just here's a map. I don't know if you can see it very well. Here's uh, North America and Greenland and Asia and Europe and Africa. And then up here, there's three words on the north side of the map that say supposed open sea. This was a map made in the 1860s when they theorized that that actually was an open sea at the North Pole. They thought there was kind of this ice dam, but once you got past the ice dam, there was open sea, and you could travel around the North Pole and get to different parts of the globe quicker. And so they just thought, well, maybe, you know, the warm Gulf Stream got up there somehow, and, and just, they were just hoping that it would work out. And, so, and they had theories about it, and scientists had studied it, and they're like, sure, you know, sea ice forms, is, uh, it starts nearest land, and then it works its way out. And so at some point, the ice is going to stop, and there's going to be open sea, right? That, I mean, there was, there was men with, that, were, that were considered smart that thought this back in the, in the 1800s. And so George DeLong... In 1879, I think that's the right year, I've got it right in my head, um, put a, uh, an expedition together to go break through the ice shelf here and get up into the open sea. Obviously, you know, that was doomed to failure, right? And that's what happened. He, he got up in there, he sailed up in there uh, during the summer, got up into the ice, and the ice and closed around him, locked him in. And he was stuck. He was stuck in that ice for, for months until actually the ice crushed his boat, his ship, right? And the men in that ship had to take the, the long boats that were on the ship and, and drag them across the ice looking for open sea, which they had three groups that set out from the ship. Eventually they found open water, over here, and they headed for what is northern Russia uh, to us. One boat didn't make it at all. One boat, which George DeLong was on, made it, but th they didn't have any food. There was one, where they landed, there was nothing. So they sent two men to find help. By the time those two men came back with help, everyone had died. George DeLong died in that expedition. The third boat made it and, and survived. And the point is, if you have the wrong map, you're in trouble, right? If you, if you think, hey, I can get somewhere by going along this path, but you have the wrong map, you can end up in a world of hurt. And the problem is, is that when we, get, when we find ourselves stuck, right, where we're like, hey, I've, I've been headed down the wrong path. I'm not really acting as a friend of God. I'm acting more like a friend of the world. I'm at odds with God. I thought God was going to be blessing me, and now I realize he's probably not trying to bless me at all because I'm at odds with him. What do I do? How do I solve this problem? And frankly, there's one basic alternative map that we find, and that's the map of shame. You see it, right, in Genesis chapter 3. God approaches Adam. Adam, where are you? 
Adam's like, I hid myself. Why? And I made clothes, you know, clothes for myself out of leaves. Why? Because I knew I was naked. When we're caught, what the map of shame is, hide yourself and fix it. Hide yourself and fix it. And so that's what a lot of us do often is when we get caught in, in sin, we hide ourselves. Sometimes we hide ourselves by blaming other people. Sometimes we hide ourselves just by putting up a good front, making everything look good. Sometimes we hide ourselves by you know, just, just you know, sta- standing off and just not in- engaging, not letting people really get to know us. And we try to fix ourselves so that we can ultimately come back to God and say, God, hey, look, I'm all better now. I'm great. I, I realized what you said and I fixed myself and now I can be accepted. Kind of what just happened here, right? The son come back saying, at least just give me a job. You know, I realized I messed up some, just, but if you could just give me a job, I'll be okay. And unfortunately, that map is the map of self-destruction, if we get away from God, if we pull ourselves out of the presence of God, there, there, there's no life. There's no hope. There's no love. God is the place where we find forgiveness and, and strength and restoration and hope and love. So if we follow that map, we're in trouble. And what I want to give to you as we look at James chapter 4 this morning, this, this evening, is, is an alternative map to find grace. An alternative map to find grace. And here's if, in a sense, the big idea, it's right out of the text. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Can you say that with me? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, and that's the map that we need to follow to find grace. Let's notice what he says, continuing on there. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it says to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, when, when I was kind of going through the text, oftentimes I just drop this, it's kind of this weird phrasing, you kind of drop it out. But actually, what, if you think about it in the terms of friendship, it makes a lot of sense for him to drop this in. So here's kind of the first thing to think about in, in the map of grace, is that God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Now that sounds a little scary, but I want you to think about it from a different perspective. You know, uh, my wife is a jealous wife. She wants me to love her. She wants my attention. Sometimes I'm caught up, you know, in whatever I'm doing, whatever things I think are important. And you know what she does sometimes? She starts fights with me. She does. She starts, some, she picks on something and she's like, she starts to pick at that and pick at that. I'm like, what, are you picking a fight here? And she's like, yeah, I am. I want your attention. You're just ignoring me doing your own thing and, and, and hey, I want your attention here, you know. That's what she does. It took me a while to realize that's what she was doing, you know. But if God is a jealous God, then this is good. It means trials are designed to get your attention and draw you back to him. Can you imagine the opposite? What if God didn't care? What if God's like, oh, no big deal. You want to go do your own thing? You want to hide and try to fix yourself yourself? I guess, go ahead, try. No big deal to me. Where would we be then, really, right? 
If God didn't pursue us, if God didn't come after us, if God didn't say, hey, I want your attention. I know how to fix this. Trust me. I've got grace for you if you'll trust me. Imagine if my wife was just like, eh, okay. How long would our marriage last, right? If she just, she did her thing, I did my thing, and we never came together? How does that work? It doesn't work. God is a jealous God. And that's a key thing to remember in trials. A key thing to remember when you're feeling caught like, ooh, I'm in the midst of realizing that I am not following God, I'm actually an enemy of God, is to realize God is jealous over you. He wants you to come to himself, and he introduces trials into your life to draw you back to him. That's his goal. He doesn't want you to fail again. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to see his, his blessing, his strength, his power, his presence in your life. And so, realizing that about God, then how do we respond? Well, notice what it says again. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Say it again with me, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? Those two ideas are both key. God opposes the proud, that if you're going to set yourself up to do what you want to do and go your own way, God is actually not going to ignore that. He's going to oppose you. He's going to, along this hike we're going on, if you're like, hey, I'm going to do my own thing, God, for a while, he's like, nope, not going to let that happen. The path you're going down now, I'm going to make it a little harder and a little harder and a little harder because that's not the path I want you going down. God opposes the proud. He doesn't ignore the proud. He opposes them but he gives grace to the humble. And so, how do, how do we humble ourselves? And that's where James unpacks this idea of humbling yourself. Notice what he says, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It's the same idea as humbling, okay? Submitting, that word is, to, is a military term, right? It's to rank yourself under. To say to the lieutenant, okay, I am not at your rank, I'm underneath. I'm a private, right? I don't get to make the calls. I just do what my sergeant tells me to do, right? And so to submit yourself to God, the, the, the way to, the map to grace is to, first of all, to, in humbling yourself, is to rank yourself under God, to say, God, you know better than me, you're in charge. Now, how do you do that? And he puts together three couplets that talk about this. Notice what he says. Draw near, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the first couplet. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Second couplet. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So three ideas here about humbling yourself or submitting yourself to God that puts you on the path to grace. So what does it mean to draw near? And I, I put it this way, to delight in the power of God's presence. To delight in the power of God's presence. Here's a couple of verses that talk about it here. Here's another similar passage, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, right, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. It sounds like James chapter 4. Casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So, again, we're not holding our anxieties to ourselves. We're saying, God, I rank myself under you. I'm drawing near to you by giving my anxieties to you, my cares to you. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I, was, I went on a mission trip to Africa in, uh, in, in the 90s when I was in college. And, and uh, we, uh, it was a mission trip to Niger, Africa. It was actually the, the, the same country that my father had gone to as a Peace Corps worker in the 60s. And uh, there's missionaries there. I got a chance to spend some time with them. And actually, uh, at the compound in the capital city where they were at, uh, the first day I was there, they're like, hey, we're uh, taking care of a baby lion for about six months. So if you see him wandering around, don't panic, you know. I'm like, baby lion? That doesn't sound good, you know. This this lion was about the size of a medium-sized dog, okay? So it came up to my mid-thigh, and... uh, it, I was sitting there, you know, the first day they're just kind of giving you an orientation. You've got to read a bunch of material. I'm sitting on the couch, and the, and the baby you know, lion wanders in and plops himself down beside me, and I'm like, I'm in Africa, you know. <laughs> but they, they talked about lions and how the, the, the lions actually make a call, right? This lion would wander around. He was like calling just to see who's out there. And the roaring lion actually is not the lion that has all the power. The roaring lion is the lion that, that scares all the animals toward the other lions lying in wait. Okay? And that's the point here. He's saying the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour because he's just trying to scare you away from your true source of protection, your true source of strength, your true source of hope in God. He's trying to scare you away from that. And that's why he says cast all your cares on God. Because he cares for you. He can actually protect you. And the devil's trying to scare you away from God. So humble yourself before God. He goes on to say, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, there's our word, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's all grace what God does in our lives. He works, he provides, he strengthens, he restores. But as, as we draw near to God, we, we, we cling to God, we say, God, I want to be close to you. Here's another passage on, on the Old Testament that kind of talks about the same thing. This is kind of a false drawing near, okay? Isaiah 58 verse 2 says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. You see it's in quotes. This is Israel talking to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, here's God's response. In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. He's like, you're drawing near to me, but it's only on the outward. (laughs) It's only outward. You're saying, I'm fasting, God. Why have you noticed it? And he's like, you're fasting in order that you can just do more of what you want, not actually to follow me. Notice what he goes on to say. Is such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? He's saying, would you really just humble yourself before me? Would you call that a fast? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? 
He's saying, hey, if you're really going to humble yourself, if you're really going to follow me and draw near to me, then you're going to seek to do what I want you to do. Getting married has taught me a lot about repentance. Because you learn things that work and don't work, right? So when, when we were first married, and, and, and my wife and I would get in an argument, I would withdraw. I'd try to pull back emotionally, even physically, and try to figure out how to solve the problem myself, right? Like, hey, she's upset with me. I must have done something wrong. I better stop, you know, pull back and figure out what I need to do. And it took me a long time to realize that that's the opposite of what she wanted me to do. That just made her feel more insecure, more scared, more upset with me. <laughs> what she wanted me to do is when she realized, hey, there's a problem here in the relationship, there's a problem that we need to solve, rather than withdrawing and say, well, I'll solve it myself. She's like, we're married. Let's solve it together. You know? And that's what God wants to do with us. He says, draw near, to, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. We'll sit down and we'll figure this out. I, I want to help you out. It took me a while to realize that my wife was really on my side. Even when she was upset about something, she wanted us to be together. And as you seek a path to grace, the map to grace means in your humbling yourself before God that you say, God, I, I want to pursue this relationship. I want to draw near to you. I don't want to hide myself. I want to draw near. And then he goes on to say, to purify, right? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, obviously, cleansing the hands is the idea of getting rid of sin. It's like saying, okay, I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing. I'm going to start doing the right things. That put off and put on language from Paul. You also get the same idea with purify back in James chapter 1, right? Where it... It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What is he saying there? He's saying, hey, purify yourself. Don't, don't get caught up in doubt. It again, goes back to the same idea here in James chapter 1. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. One of the biggest things you have to do in trials is, again, pure, in purifying your hearts is to really believe God is my friend. God is my friend. And I can come to him. Again, when my wife and I were first married, um, we had uh, different ideas about what we should buy as a couple, right? One of the classic examples is, is, is we were thinking about buying a table. You know, we had no, you know, you get married, you have nothing, you know, not even a table. And, and uh, she's like, let's buy a table. And I'm like, okay, sure, no problem. We need, it. We need a table, let's buy one. What, what you, like 50 bucks, 100 bucks? She's, no, I'm thinking more like 500 bucks. I'm like, $500 for a table? What do you mean? you got to be kidding me. She's like, no, I want a table that's going to last, a table that's going to be a, a place where we can create memories from the family. I'm like, but $500 for a table, how's that going to work? Where, you know? And so we had to kind of discuss it for a while, you know. And at some point in that, you, you, again, you're tempted to withdraw. You're tempted to say, you know what, I've said something wrong here. 
I'm going to stop talking and figure out what I said wrong so I never say that again, you know. And then, and then we can continue in the conversation. Well, that doesn't work, right? So there's a point at which you have to purify your heart in the sense of saying, what's most important here? What am I really going to pursue? What's really important? And I had to pursue loving my wife. That's really what's most important. And the table is not that important. You know, in the grand scheme of things, loving my wife is what's really important. So then we... Once you decide to purify your heart, then you can pursue doing the right thing. You can say, okay, this is how it's going to work. And we can work through that together. And we did. We got a table. We still have the table. We've had to fix it a few times, but it's lasted us almost 20 years. Why? Because we chose to purify our hearts, to decide what's truly important. And again, to humble yourself before God means that you, you, you say, God, I want your grace. I want your mercy. And I realize the things that I've been holding on to, the things that I've been like, I've got to have these things. I'm actually going to hold them with open hands. You say, God, you can take them. You can, you can change them. You can, you, you can give them to me. I don't care. I just want you. I want to love you more than I want what I want. So again, can you repeat it with me? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. One more time. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We draw near. We purify our hearts. It's the path to grace. The last one is to grieve. Sorrow in the process of lament is what I put down here again. Notice what it says. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, this is it. I struggle with this passage, okay? Because I'm probably like most of you. I've got a German-English background, okay? I grew up mostly in Iowa, which means I grew up around Scandinavians, and we're pretty stoic people, right? We're not very expressive. It's hard for us to even clap, right? I mean... (laughs) I try to clap to, my, to a song, and, and uh, my wife's like, you're off, you're off beat, you're off rhythm. I'm like, I'm trying. I'm, I don't know. It's just not, not me, right? So uh, expressiveness, like really mourning, is not easy to do. What does it mean here to do that? And obviously, in, in their culture, they were very expressive in their grief, right? They would wail. So uh, w- how does this work? Again, the, the second phrase gives us a little more insight. It says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So the things that made you happy, that made you joyful, are the things that should now make you sad. But it's ironic, right? Because let's go back to the beginning of the book, right? What does it say? It says, in everything, right? In, in every kind of trial, consider it pure joy. So in some ways what he's saying here is, the path to joy is actually through sorrow, which is very ironic. Right? Think about it. So what does it mean? So here's, here's a passage. Joel chapter 2 talks about it. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. There so again, Old Testament is kind of talking about the fact, especially with the prophets, right, that the, it's not just an outward change, it's an inward change, it's an inward mourning. 
Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So he's saying, hey, there's a path to joy, but it's through mourning. It's through rending your hearts. So because we have time and because, uh, again, we're condensing this down, I'm, I'm going to go to, uh, so there's, after this passage on repentance and the path of grace, he actually gives three examples, okay, of how pride needs to be, you need to humble yourself and, and how, you, how you need to seek God. Notice the first one. Uh, first example here in James chapter 4, it says, uh, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law and are not, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge, there's only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And then the second, so there's just one example of how you can be proud. I can, I, I can judge my neighbor. He's like, no, you shouldn't judge your neighbor. There's only one judge. Humble yourself before God in how you talk about your neighbors. Then the second example he gives of repentance is verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Again, so the second example is on kind of the, your planning cycle, right? And if, if you think about it here, his, his examples on self-deception, one was on the tongue, right? The second one was on faith and how faith needs to operate. And the third was on how you treat people. And here we have three examples of repentance. And the third one helps us better understand the weeping morning one. And it starts in chapter 5 and verse 1, which is also the hardest one to understand. So put on your thinking caps and stay with me here. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Let's just stop there for a second. This is what makes, what makes it hard to understand. Because some people want to say, well, this can't be talking about Christians because it's talking about the miseries that are coming upon them. Okay? But I think people forget how prophecy works. Prophecy is, is that sense of, hey, there's a judgment coming, you better respond to it. If you respond to it now and weep, you won't weep later. Think of Jonah, right? Jonah gets told, go to Nineveh and say, hey, I forget the length of time, but in 30 days, the city's going to be destroyed. And he goes around and preaches that. And then what happens? They repent. And Jonah's sitting out there waiting for the destruction to happen. And what happens? Nothing and Jonah sees the time lapse happen. He's like, oh, the deadline's done. God, I knew you weren't going to do it. I knew if they repented, you weren't going to do it. And so I didn't want to do it in the first place. Right? That's Jonah. But the point is, is that if they weeped, they weeped at first, so they didn't weep later. And so here again, James is talking, in a sense, as a prophet to the rich in the believing community to say, hey, if you don't get your act together, you will weep and howl because you will, you will miss out on the blessing of God. Notice what he continues to say. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence again. You will, gets you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in the, on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This isn't an exact correlation with today because in, in that world you had the super rich and you had the poor and you didn't have very many people in between. And most of us would be people in between, right? But I want you to think about what he says here and how riches affect us even, right? Like how do we use money in trials? Let's just think about that for a second. Oftentimes when, when we're in trials, we hoard what we have, right? Kind of goes back to James chapter 2 where, hey, you see a brother in need, but you're like, hey, I need to hold on to what I have. I don't want to give. Sometimes we use money to make us happy when we're not, right? We're like, I'm not feeling good. I need to go buy something. Ever felt that way? I mean, even guys feel that way sometimes. I'm like, hey, I need to get on Amazon, buy something. <laughs> I just feel, feel better about myself. Have a new toy, right, sometimes. We use money to make us happy when we're not. We use money to relieve trials we don't want to face. God brings something in your life, so I'm like, I don't like this. Pfft, credit card, boom, take care of it. I don't want to deal with this. We aren't generous sometimes. We see people in need and we don't help them out. We hide behind the rules. Like, hey, you know, I wish I could help you out, but, you know, I don't think I should for whatever reason. We borrow and get in debt because we need it now, right? We, m money and tr for us and trials go, it's like, it's like hand in hand. Or it's hard to separate the two sometimes. Because it goes to the American dream, Right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right, out of the Declaration of Independence, has become the pursuit of more. I don't know if you can read that or not, but it's that, that, that idea of pursuit of happiness has become the pursuit of more. Like, happiness is simply more, if we just had more, then we'd be happy, right? That's, again, what Kevin was talking about this morning. Or, and the journey of life is a journey of accumulation. Like, how you tell your story tells a lot about you, Right? Like, if you're going to say, well, I, I was born, you know, and I went to school so I could get an education. Why did you get the education? Well, so I could get a good job. Why? So I could get a good wife and have a good house for my family. And, and uh, so that hopefully maybe I could get a better house and, you know, maybe a boat and some things to just enjoy life and ultimately to, to get through that job and then to retire. Because retirement is the epitome of life, evidently, Right? But it's, it's simply a, it's a story of accumulation. We tell our story as if we're just getting more and more stuff. And that's the whole point to life. And it, is that the point to life? It, it, again, Kevin did a great job talking about that this morning. That is not the point to life. The point of life is knowing God and walking with Him. Think about it from the standpoint of holidays, which are holy days, right? Setting things that are sacred apart. And how do we translate holy holidays? Almost every holiday has to do with getting more stuff. I don't care if it's Halloween, get more candy. Or Valentine's Day, get more candy. Or Easter, you get more candy, right? For kids, and even for adults, right? It's like, how much more stuff can we get? Again, uh, the way we think about life is so attuned to how much more stuff can I get? That, that tells me my worth. That tells me I'm valuable. That tells me that God loves me. And that's the exact opposite of what God wants you to understand about why he gives you stuff. 
Here's a quote. I don't know if you can read it very well or not, but it says, this is from the High Definition Commentary. So if wealth is not inherently evil, which James is not saying it is, then what problem is James getting at? The problem is not having wealth, but what we are doing with it, or more precisely, what we are not doing with it. James portrays the rich sitting on their wealth instead of using it to accomplish something meaningful. Just as the rich fool dies before he can enjoy his wealth, James warns the rich their savings will be destroyed before they are able to spend them. The storage of wealth is what leads to its destruction by pests and corrosion, and this corrosion is what will testify against them. If the rich had used their wealth for good instead of hoarding it, then the moths, rust, and corrosion would not have destroyed it. Think of it this way, all right? Would you want a friend who always took your stuff and hoarded it in his storage unit? Some of you brought boats to family camp. I'm jealous. But what if you went to your friend, you had given the boat to your friend to have for a little while, and he's like, hey, I need, I need my boat because I want to go to family camp. And they're like, no, it's, it's in the perfect spot. It's in my storage unit. And we need to keep it in the storage unit because there it'll be, it'll be safe. It'll be good. You're like, no, I want to enjoy my family time. I want to have maybe friends enjoy it as well. We're going to go out. We're going to have fun. We're going to create memories. And your friend is like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. You really need to keep it in your storage unit. You would be like, pow, give me the keys, right? Why? Because when you give your friend stuff, you don't want him just sticking it in the storage unit all the time. You either want him to use it or give it back to you, right? And that's what James is saying here in James chapter 5. Rich, you're hoarding all this stuff together, and God has given you stuff, but you're, he wants you to use it. He wants you to bless people. He wants you to do things for God. He wants you to help other people. And you're sitting there thinking, I've got to keep it all here. And if you do that, when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to weep because you missed out on so many good opportunities to bless people. Because you'll realize that all those riches in that storage unit, whether it's on your 401k or in your, in your bank account, won't really matter at all when you stand before God. It doesn't matter how much you have when you leave. It matters how much you have where you're going. And so that, here's, again, helping you understand that turning your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom the rich are thinking, I'm great. I've got all this stuff. I've got a good 401k. I've got a good retirement. I've got this. I've got that. I'm good. Look, I'm happy now. We should, we should weep if we think that way. We should mourn if we think that way because we've lost the perspective of God on stuff. Stuff is passing away. It's not going to last. It's going to break down. Just look at your smartphone. It lasts a year if it doesn't break down, and then it's obsolete. Why do we hold on to stuff when we can use it to love people who are eternal and use it to serve God who is great and awesome? Why would we want to do that? Why would we not mourn that attitude? Why we would not weep over that attitude? Because we missed out on such blessing from God if we just use what we have 
to love others and to love him. He ends by saying it this way. It's translated, he does not resist you. I think it's better translating, who is not resisting you? Who is not resisting you? The poor is resisting you. And God himself is resisting you if you act this way. He's opposed to you if you're hoarding your stuff. He doesn't, he, he's going to turn that stuff you have into ashes in your hands. He's going to be like, you think it makes you happy? It's just going to make you miserable. So here's two truths. Again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? Being God's friend with my resources is more effective than trying to get more resources from God. Being God's friend with my resources is way more effective than trying to get more resources from God. He's given you so much stuff. And this is where the path of joy comes in. Man, in grace. You know what's amazing? Is when you realize you have some things from God and you get to bless people with it. And you reach out and you invite somebody over for dinner. And you love them. And, or maybe you say, oh, there's a missionary. I'm going I'm to give to them. I'm going to help out. Uh, the camp offering, I'm going to give to that. Why? Because God has given me resources and I want to use them to bless others. And all of a sudden you get joy. There's joy all around, right? Because you're realizing, hey, I get to love these people. I get to encourage these people. I get to see God work over here. And all of a sudden, when you're trying to hoard all your resources, because you're like, I'm not sure how it's going to go. I'm not sure what God's going to do. All of a sudden, when you start giving things away, you start seeing God work all over the place. You start saying, wow, look at what he's doing here, what he's doing there. This is amazing over here. And that's the path of joy. That's the path he wants you on. That's one of the paths where you're walking with him and you're saying, okay, I've got, I've got a need here, but, but man, God's given me enough to help out with at least this, so I'll do that. And then, oh, wow, look what God did with that. Isn't that amazing? You see the difference? That's what should turn, if, you're at, if you have the attitude of, I've got to hoard my stuff, it should turn you to gloom. You're like, hey, I'm missing out on seeing God work in so many ways. But the path to grace is just to come to him and say, God, I had the wrong attitude. Can we, can we talk about how I should be using my money? Because I'm confused. I don't know. But, but if you could just guide me and direct me here, if you could help me out, I'd love to see what you could do. I, I want to follow you. And God starts pouring out grace in your life. He's like, you, you got this attitude? Let's see what you can do with this. Now let's, let's try this. And, and grace starts to pour out in your life and through your life in ways you could not have imagined before. So, what's your next step? Maybe you say, where do I need to humble myself before God? I use money as an example. That's just one example, okay? Where do you need to humble yourself before God? It's the path to grace. To draw near to purify, to mourn where it's appropriate, and to have those desires changed over. Those desires that were out of control, now they're in line with God. Now they're following God. Maybe another question to ask yourself is, how can I follow the map to grace this week? Where do I need to draw near to God? Where do I need to purify my, my heart? Where do I need to mourn? You say, God, I had the totally wrong attitude here. 
it's, it's messing up my ability to see how you're working. And I want to walk with you. I want to delight in seeing you work. So, let's say it one more time. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? And that's what we want. We want grace. We want his grace in our, in, in our morning, in our evening, in our afternoon. We want it, we want it in, our, in our families. We want it in our kids. We want it in our perspectives with our money, our time. We want his grace. So the map to grace, when you find yourself is to realize God is a jealous God. He's getting your attention for a reason. He, he loves you. He wants you back with him. And so humble yourself before him. Draw near to him. Purify your hearts. Turn your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Because when you humble yourself, he will exalt you. You can, you can take it to the bank. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,